0: You can sit there and imagine what it would like to be what it would be like to be a bat. You know, we have movies about that. They're called Batman movies. <laughs> This is Marooned on Mars with Matt and Hillary, and I'm Matt. I'm Hillary. And this is the podcast where we talk about um, Ken Stanley Robinson's Mars trilogy, part by part. That's right. And this part is uh, part three of Green Mars.
1: A chapter that focuses on Anne Claiborne.
0: It's called Long Run Out. Long Run Out. We're recording this uh, at my apartment next to windows, so throughout the recording, you're going to hear cars going by Mm -hmm. and probably sirens and probably... Mm -hmm. Maybe even some airplanes landing at O'Hare Oh, probably every 10 minutes, you would think.
1: That's nice. It's good to be in the flight path.
0: Just want to let our <laughs> listeners know that uh, they're not on an airplane currently, or um, and there's no <laughs> sirens chasing them unless they are in fact stealing a I car. I mean, there could or, be. I mean, we knowing our knowing our listeners. Exactly.
1: I mean, we don't know the circumstances under which people listen.
0: We can't know. To this
1: podcast. And we can't. And fundamentally, it's the problem of other minds. <laughs> <laughs> it's
0: true. It's absolutely true.
1: Uh, your new apartment is very nice. Oh, thank you so much. It's very leafy and peaceful. That's
0: what we like. Uh, uh, leafy peacefulness. There's here. some
1: really good cats here, too.
0: Really awesome cats, which they're probably just sleeping somewhere. So uh, the listeners won't get a, be privy to their uh, whining. <laughs> um, we. This is an amazing chapter, which we're going to talk about brief, shortly, uh, yes, and at length. Not briefly. Briefly, we'll be soon. Ta- yes, yeah, soon we'll be talking about it and at length. At length. <laughs> But first we wanted to cover some Kim Stanley Robinson slash Mars news that's been in the news lately.
1: Yeah, right. So you said uh, Robinson just did an interview on Huff, HuffPo? HuffPo, good old Huffington Post. I think uh, I've literally never read the Your favorite the Post.
0: neoliberal news aggregator that, uh, whatever. Um, <laughs> they interviewed him about basically geoengineering and uh, <clears throat> uh, kind of, is you know, is there a leftist case for geoengineering uh robinson's basic you know the the lefty critique of it of geoengineering of terraforming is that no we're gonna you know screw up the world even worse right. than it already is and robinson's basically like this it's a bad move to do that um to to just shut that all off because right. um it's kind of a all hands on deck moment and one of the big actually it's interesting one of the big kind of examples he gives is like uh he says well what if in a heat wave in India, 100 million people die, and India decides to simulate a volcanic eruption that, uh, you know, sends particulate matter into the air and cools the atmosphere. Are we going to say no? How do we stop them from doing that, right? Um, And who are we to say no, you know, Um, faced with that kind of catastrophe. So um, things are, you know, it's likely that things are going to happen, governments or even individuals are going right. to try things. And um, uh, it's basically for him, I think it's like a democratic imperative. Uh, it, you know, the the better, the more that uh, populations, that people can be actually informed about these issues and their options, the more conscious decision making can be, and, and collective decision making can be engaged in. Right, right. So that's, I think that's kind of the thrust of his thinking there in that in that interview which there
1: there was actually an interesting piece about um geoengineering from a left perspective in jacobin Mm. just recently Mm. online um uh, like re re reposted from some radical science journal Mm -hmm. um that made some of the same points and is also sort of making that case for um we can't Or should not just blanket shut off um, the process of scientific experimentation and the possibility of enabling other kinds of possibilities for dealing as at the same time, you know, I mean, because in some ways, I mean, I think part of the point of this piece was to say that like, uh, uh, while um, the warming of the planet is not just a foregone conclusion, but an actuality that we are already living in Mm -hmm. uh to take that as a as a uh to to feel that then there is nothing that we can do or only the most sort of like um utterly drastic um transformation of the ways that we live um can do anything Uh, i think the point was to think more broadly and to work in multiple kinds of areas and that and that you know demonizing geoengineering is not uh is not going to be fruitful or helpful.
0: Yeah. I mean, uh, Robinson's point is, is basically mm. like, I believe in science and why shut right. off any part of science, you know, um, uh, if it's going to be a potential help. Right. You know? Right. Um, you also have told me. Oh, yeah. That yesterday. F- yes.
1: I believe yesterday front page of the New York Times uh, was an article about Mars Uh, not a news article by someone named Dennis Overby.
0: I should mention before you go into that is Mars has been at its brightest. Its brightest. uh, For the next 15 years or something like that. Did you happen to see it in the night sky?
1: Uh, I have seen it in the night sky. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Um, I tweeted out some photos mm -hmm. of it in our, on our uh, podcast on Mars account on the Uh, Twitter. Thank you. Yes. Thank you for doing that. Oh, it's my pleasure for
1: maintaining the Twitter account. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, I have seen it, although, you know, my uh, my house is not well positioned for uh, sky viewing because we're right across from a park, which yeah. is, you would think, oh, it gives you more sky because there are right. fewer buildings. Uh, but they have floodlights on in the oh, park at yeah. night, so the night sky is, uh, yeah. 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 My
0: back porch faces south, so, like, in the middle, of the, I was, like, laying in bed, like, 11 o'clock reading, of course, uh, a kim Reading, stanley robinson yeah. novel <laughs> to be named and um uh i was like oh yeah and i just remembered oh yeah the mars thing because i had seen actually the adler planetarium had like was inviting people to come out to the park and uh look at it through telescopes and stuff and so i like got out of bed in my pajamas and walked past my girlfriend playing video games <laughs> And went out there and took a photo or like went out there, looked at it, came back in, went back and came back inside, went back out, took a photo. She didn't blink. She didn't ask questions <laughs> about what I was doing. Um,
1: just taking pictures of something from the back porch. We course. have a strong relationship. <laughs>
0: very trusting. And um, uh, yeah, so it was uh, very bright. I couldn't, it wasn't red from my perspective.
1: I, yeah, I find it hard bright. to see the red it's, of it. I but mean, I brightness. think if I had a...
0: My, uh, telescope, it or telescope or a microscope. I don't think that's how it works, what? Hillary. You're a humanist. Can't
1: you just turn it around?
0: So anyway, there was that. And then there was we didn't um mention either last time that they found liquid on Mars. Water they on found Mars. water on Mars. Yeah. So um
1: under one of the ice caps, right? Yeah,
0: I guess so. Yeah. Right? I didn't read it.
1: Well that's <laughs> Uh, I'm sure you were reading something else. I'm
0: always reading something else. I read mostly headlines, and then I say, "Cool, okay, bye." I don't need to, yeah, read it. Okay. Read
1: headlines, then panic. Uh, yeah. So, any, but so, yes. Dennis
0: Overby is I uh, think for
1: all of these, got
0: a bug in his bonnet about Mars.
1: Well, I think for all all of the all of the reasons that you have just said, uh, I guess it seemed timely to have something about Mars on the front page, and it really is uh, of the times, and it really is kind of an essay-ish kind of piece. So, uh, you know, it begins with a kind of, um, uh, it's, it's full of like lots of poetic language. It calls out to us, Mm um, you know, language that actually resonates in weird, um, uh, and probably like less well-written ways than the John Boone speech that Mm -hmm. begins (laughs) Red Mars. Yeah, right. Uh, and I, I was just struck by a couple of things in this essay. So, I mean, it's it, essentially what the essay is saying is, hey, Mars is really close, and there are all these discoveries, and you might want to be interested in them, and also we're destroying the Earth, and we should think again about the possibility that we're going to go live on Mars, and hey, Elon Musk, he's made rockets.
0: Yeah, did Elon Musk, like, fund this article <laughs> or something like that?
1: All right. Uh, and there are good pictures of, you know, the the Curiosity rover, everybody's everybody's favorite rover. Um, uh But there are lines in it that really struck me just in relation to uh, thinking about the kinds of stuff that we've been talking about and the stuff that seems so, I don't know, manifestly part of Robinson's project. In the Mars trilogy, we get this line early on in the article, Mars has always been the backyard of our imaginations, the place we might one day live or from where invaders would come in flying saucers, dot, 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 Um,
0: I don't understand this backyard metaphor. I, I, the
1: backyard is weird to me, but I, I think, I mean. Not and, to
0: like derail the conversation, but yeah, go ahead. No, no,
1: no. The backyard is weird. I mean, okay. that, that was also what interested me there. And I was thinking um, it's oddly a very domestic way to describe it. Um, but, uh, and in some ways it calls out the way that for some reason Mars is a planet that we feel like we have a relationship mm-hmm, to. hmm Uh, But I also think it sets up this thing that happens later in the article, which I am currently scrolling through trying to find, um, where the author begins to think, um, you know, he thinks about the, uh, he mentions the finding of water um, and says that that might mean that we have, quote, neighbors Mm -hmm. out there. Right. Um, So we're continuing backyard neighbors but you know, if it's in your suburbs, backyard, exactly. Suburbs, yeah. Well, if it's in Earth's backyard, then presumably we own it, right? right. In some way, I mean, that's our property—the right. backyard, um, or your, it's your landlord's right. property, more likely. <laughs> um, and he mentions that uh, you know the the possibility for life, um, and and the thought that um, that I think that. Um, People who think about planetary biology and people who study extraterrestrial life point out, which is that we don't necessarily know what form life that comes from other places will take, right? Mm-hmm. It, it may take a while before we know to call something life. Right. Which I think is a really interesting, incredibly interesting and um, uh, complicated idea. So he, he talks about that stuff, um, but then he uh, gets us back to the idea that... Um, I'm looking for this. It's a good quote. Uh he gets us back to the idea. So he says, "All right, so we have to have a we're going to have to think broadly about what life is." And then we get, "But if they are alive, whatever that turns out to mean, mm-hmm. then a kind of spiritual and intellectual reckoning will be upon us. Depending on how wild or familiar these alien creatures are, we might have to decide whether our allegiance is to DNA-based organisms or something even broader." And on the one hand, you know, I'll I'll give credit to, like, yeah, this is going to be really complicated and, I guess, spiritually complicated as well as intellectually complicated if we find life that is not DNA-based. But that it immediately becomes a matter of, like, figuring out what our allegiances are, thinking about that in the backyard. Um, And he goes on, we might have to decide whether microbes or entire potential biospheres have rights. And I would just say we might already have to decide yeah, that why why, right? why is that something we have to I mean, put off i mean don't we live in a place with microbes and potential biospheres that we treat as resources and as if they had no
0: right isn't there a whole field of right. study of, uh, and like activist groups uh devoted to animal rights isn't there a whole field of study that mm. argues that dolphins are essentially humans or you know that 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 animal intelligence is you know equivalent to uh human intelligence right we,
1: and and moreover that like the interactions of life and non life um in environmental scenes are so complex right. that we've no idea what we 're doing oh, when yeah. we're uh, and certainly we can 't predict what we 're doing when we are uh, you know um, using those things as resources, extracting the resources we need from them. Or
0: even uh, just simply being human at the base level when, like, 50% of the DNA in your body is not human DNA. Right. Like, you yourself constitute an ecosystem and does does the microflora and the gut, the gut flora and the gut flaunt, fauna in your gut, <laughs> in your does gut. that have rights to? Well,
1: I mean, these are, so I think it, it is interesting, and I think this is something, I really do think this is something that, like, not just the Mars trilogy, but Robinson's work more generally is always saying we should be thinking about is why do we pose these questions in the form of this possibility in relation to Mars? When we could be posing, and probably actually like desperately need to pose, at least versions of those questions, which maybe don't have to be about allegiance. And they might not even right. have to be about rights or modeling yeah. things on the primacy of the human. And he, this author from the Times goes on to say, if we decide to engage in the ultimate imperialist project, we could try to make Mars habitable for humans by heating the planet to melt the ice caps, et cetera. And then he talks a bit about terraforming. Um And and it may be that he is just bringing the word imperialist in there to be sort of critical of those projects. I think that's a hopeful reading of it. But it feels to me a little bit like Mars is Our Backyard Um, So we may have to ask these questions about where our allegiances lie. I mean, the whole thing is set up as though the only possible way to think about our interaction with Mars is, one, to just assume that, like, we've so monumentally screwed things up here that it's time for humanity to rocket off someplace else and, like, leave this place to, you know, burn or stew or whatever it is. Um And two, that the only relation that we could have would be an imperialist one, right. and I, I do really strongly feel like the Mars books are so much about saying that's not the only relation right. and that and that we do take that as a default um, but even when we're taking that as a default, even we human beings, you know uh, we you know like white in our case, white Western human beings <laughs> mm-hmm. with the history of imperialism behind us, mm-hmm. even we are more complicated than that right you know
0: yeah I think that that use of imperialism is very uh very it sounds very casual to me Not, not very well thought out by him and because it does like yeah why is why why is he automatically mapping a kind of imperialistic geopolitical framework which also maps in the on the micro on the micro political scale onto a Suburban view of Yeah right right. Mapping that onto Mars Who is this um, We That he's talking Mm -hmm. about uh, That uh, That operates In the realm of Allegiances Yeah yeah. I mean you and I Hillary have formed An allegiance (laughs) You know we Very very much so In this podcast Obviously And that's how we think About our relationship Is One of allegiances Right and
1: thus Who will we have to destroy To get what
0: we want (laughs) Exactly. Like, who is this we that has to decide this stuff uh, that or that gets to decide this stuff?
1: Well, and I think, again, like as in um, as in saying we may have to consider these questions about whether microbes have rights, uh, it might be profitable to flash that question onto our own scene of living rather than some, you know, uh, whatever. Imagined future Mars moment, right? Um, with imperialism, also the idea that like we might we might uh, uh, decide to form an imperialist relation to Mars. There's a way in which that gesture, uh, because their imperialism is being used sort of metaphorically, um, but also sort of literally, has a kind of whitewashing effect on you know the still actually existing historical effects of imperialism. Mm-hmm and colonialism in the world that we actually live in, yeah. effects which, by the way, have a great deal to do with uh, the warming of our planet, right. um, the radical inequalities on our planet, our h- perceived helplessness in relation to those two supposed immutable facts, right, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Probably the be- the worst outcome of uh, the the West's imperialistic stance on the rest of the world is, in fact, global warming. I mean, we extract the resources of the third world Mm -hmm. for use in the first world, and that resource extraction and the transportation of all those resources to the first world um, is the cause of much of this global warming. I mean, in another interview, I think it was the one in Practical Philosophy, Radical philosophy, Radical philosophy. Philosophy, robinson makes the point that you know your average Indian or your average american expends 30 times the amount of uh energy that your average indian does and so the being scared of a billion of the billion people of in india going online and and getting to drive cars yeah that's one thing but there's also the 300 million americans who whose carbon footprint footprint totally dwarfs that of all both india and china combined right 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 so it's you know very you know it's basically what you'd expect from the new york times uh even though hey cool they had a mar an essay about mars on the front they
1: did and the pictures are really nice yeah Yeah. pretty pictures i mean the really good pictures yeah i'm a sucker for a a mars picture
0: um interesting stuff
1: yeah so that was that was topicality Mm -hmm. topical new york
0: times (laughs) excellent great job I want them tuning out. I want them hypnotized by <laughs> the, the magic of my voice. Every
1: single word. Every
0: word I say is carefully chosen. <laughs> this is all scripted, even the ums and the likes, which people hate. Okay, so we're talking about. Now, this is a great part. And um, this book, I. Green Mars moves so fast and has so much plot, and you're going to probably hear uh, a leaf blower for the next uh, 15 minutes out the window, but that's fine. Um, It moves so fast, uh, especially after this part, um, because, well, just a lot of stuff goes on. But I was saying to you before we started, I feel like this book, more than Red Mars, the transitions between and the relationships between parts, from part to part, Operate in a somewhat dialectical fashion mm-hmm. in terms of bringing up ideas, uh, letting them kind of marinate in a, in one moment that that is that is a part, and then flipping them around in a different way for the next part, and 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 exploring them from a different angle. So in that first part, we had uh, Nergal, the perspective from a, of a child's point of view of Mars, who who had only known Mars and only known a small portion of right, Mars. Right. Right then we got um art randolph good uh, old art good old hilarious uh, he's a bear like man bear like (laughs) incompetent (laughs) art right um who experiences mars from a completely different perspective he's coming from earth mars is much smaller he doesn't work the gravity is really uh weird for him yeah um he uh he gets to meet a Martian at the end of it. Mars Um, is
1: already a socialized place to him. It's yeah. Space of humans and post humans. There's already
0: been, there's been humans on Mars for like almost 70 years now. Right. Uh, The revolution happened 50 years in the past. Um, And, then we get finally uh in part three long run out um reintroduced to one of our uh familiar characters and claiborne from red mars and i just want to point out too um in terms of that sort of dialectical relationship in in the in the art randolph in the the ambassador chapter he spends a lot of time in a car in yeah older car yeah and he gets um the, the chapter ends with him being locked out locked of his out car. Of the car. And Anne uh, also, in this chapter, spends a lot of time in her car, mm-hmm. driving mm-hmm. around, not getting locked out, but sometimes uh, misplacing it because she's among so many other boulders. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, and, 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 and and she drives in a very different way than both art and coyote do. Mm-hmm. Um so I mean just those kinds of themes and and threads that that are that link these chapters in yeah. really interesting ways I think is uh worth pointing out and 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 meditating upon.
1: Yeah, I agree and I think it would not be um it wouldn't it seems to me not at all wrong to think that the um that the novel is interested in not only movements of plot and narrative and ideas, um, but also in what we could think of as um, symbolic movements mm-hmm. or movements and and even movements of things. I mean, that idea that it might be important to think about a world in which people are driving around, mm-hmm. right, shut into these small spaces on this world that has a kind of vastness to mm-hmm. it. Um, you know, we can think about that in symbolic terms. We can think about it in material terms, right? Mm-hmm. What does it mean to get around mm-hmm. um, in the world? Um, we could think about, you know, the the buildup of certain kinds of shared experiences among different people. Um, and also something that I, I think is really um, kind of a wonderful, if low-key, part of these novels is that there, um, a lot happens, but also they are, really attentive to what is becoming everyday or banal or Mm -hmm. quotidian Mm -hmm. experience and we talked about a bit last time with art the the airport or the idea of eating in the cafe that is the same you know the cafe in whichever city on mars which is the same as a cafe in ottawa yeah and sheffield right same as a cafe in ottawa right that um you know and which is one version of, like, ordinariness or, or in another version of, or banality, something mm-hmm. like that. Um, but we could also think that the novels are letting us see the emergence of everyday life, everyday life practices yeah. on Mars, which is fascinating. And I think they're really, they've been attentive to that the whole yeah. time. The other thing I wanted to say is I, you know, um, re- reading these books for the second time I've only read the trilogy once before and it was a while ago um it's been interesting to see what I concentrate on and pay attention to this time and I think in the first reading I thought a lot about the way in which um and and this matters because we're getting back to Anne the novels take um you know what what some Some people think of as a sort of political divide, right, between the reds and the greens on Earth, that is, between green politics and socialist politics, Um, often thought to be two sort of like conflicting strains. Um, uh, And partly just by the kind of neat inversion that on Mars what we think of as green politics or red politics Um, you know the novels show us that these things are not opposed in the ways that we think that they're opposed and actually this is something that we have to think about more i think that goes back to what you were saying about that recent interview Mm -hmm. with robinson um but reading again i think oh this is actually the way in which we're being asked to think and the sorts of things we're being asked to think about are are actually even so much more complicated than that this this demand that we um think really differently about where political life is where social life is um, uh, where individual life is and and takes and where it takes place all of those things feel I, yeah anyway it's very exciting to be reading them again and the this Anne chapter for me really brought up because like we talked about the last time we talked about Anne mm-hmm. um, uh, we have a, such an intense relationship between the psychic pain that she is in and the place that she's in, um, and she herself in this chapter is thinking or experiencing the relation between her own pain and this place, that, this place that she both loves and wants to defend and wants to have kill her. Um, yeah, this is just a very intense and and sad, but also kind of amazing, and I guess ultimately
0: transformative chapter. The I um the the notion of I mean there's a lot of notions that I think I've read this chapter now 3 times in the last week because we were thinking mm. about trying to uh talk about it last week and then I read it again and then I think I read it again but um there's a lot of there's a in this 20 pages there's really a lot going on yeah um and mm. there's a few notions that I think to to keep in mind is one of them which we we i think we talked a little bit about last week kind of um after recording was the notion of of movement kind of um uh i asked you last week uh after recording this weird relationship that she has between with coyote or that coyote mm, has with mm-hmm. her in this relation in this chapter where we haven't really seen them interact we've never seen them interact really um in in, in red mars and But he seems to have a kind of affinity for her or just a, a, a kind of sense that, uh, first of all, she, he has a sense that she's in trouble because when he runs into her, she's suffering from her glossolalia again. Yeah. She can't understand words or, or, or make words. Yeah, And he sort of really takes care of her and um, goes slow and then kind of reintroduces her to the world, to the fact that there are things going on on Mars that he knows that she is not going to be comfortable with and um tries to bring her into that. So Coyote's role here <coughs> is to tell her, "Hey, there's this whole, you know, there there are these reds who she knows about. Uh but they would really appreciate it if you were part of them." And she kind of says, "They don't need me. they I don't I wouldn't fit in." And she goes, "Yeah, but he or Coyote says, "Yeah, but you might need them." And also they would r- you know, you're more to them than than what you know, what what, what you're aware of, because she's really been alone and so lonely, isolated, yeah, uh, for a very long time, and so a lot of what happens in this chapter, or what Coyote's seems to be his motivation, is to activate her, to or to to activate her some way, yeah. to, to bring her, her back into a sense of society, and um, and that has to do with, uh, and the way he does that is to bring her into a movement mm-hmm. and one of the other things that we see and and i'm, I'm trying to get at a, a, a notion of of political movement and physical mm-hmm. movement or mm-hmm. geophysical mm-hmm. movement or aerophysical movement mm-hmm. i guess because one of the big f- one of the the interesting sort of figures in this chapter are these ventifacts yeah these rocks these stones that are worn smooth by the fines and the sand over millennia over millions of years so much so that finally they flip over and then another side is worn smooth or they bump into another rock or something shifts them so another side is worn smooth for another million years and then it happens again and again so sometimes there are uh, ventifacts with two sides Sometimes there are, there are cubic ones. Sometimes there are hexagonal ones, right? And the notion is that eventually you might get a perfectly smooth spherical one, right? Which would just roll all over Mars, I suppose. Um, but that, that these movements of rocks and of politics take many, many, mm-hmm. many, many years to, uh, to uh, happen, and that uh, the forces of contingency are intimately wound up in them, and that's another thing that is extremely important in this yeah. chapter. Yeah. Contingency.
1: Yeah, that's uh, that's so great, and um, and it's interesting to think about that. I mean, if we just think about uh, like funny resonances from chapter to chapter. In the last chapter, we talked about uh, Bucky balls, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And in this chapter, we have these. Uh, Uh, the rocks Um, and you could think also that the I mean and this brings us back to a point that we talked about earlier which is something that I I I admire in these books that they um, you know that they take very seriously that for human beings uh, the so-called natural world is often a resource for making metaphors Mm -hmm. and comparisons and analogies that that we use to think about ourselves or to say things that we don't know how to say in other kinds of ways. Um, and, and while I think that ultimately, you know, Robinson never lets you get away with, with that, that sort of, you know, human dominating gesture over the natural world, um, that he really also uses, uses that as, as a kind of like as a human thing that, that we do, um, As a way of pushing us to think differently, as well as to try to envision this different place. So I was going to say, the very idea of the long run out, the avalanche that for some reason, like, keeps traveling a really long way across the ground, it works, you know, that works similarly to... uh, that idea of the rock polished mm-hmm. that then turns the mm-hmm. play of contingency yeah. um, and also like rules or laws, mm-hmm. physical laws that you could know. Um, in the in the long run out, there's a question, why does that happen sometimes? Why is it the case that sometimes the rock fall will travel? Mm-hmm. Um, and we begin, I mean, it's notable that this chapter, and I think this has something to do with what a powerful and important figure Anne is in these books as a whole, um, as well as what a solitary figure is. We talked last time about how the prologue italicized sections often give us a different perspective or a different point of view. And in this one, we're actually just with Anne. Yeah. Um, and we're with Anne in a moment in which she both has and has not. I mean, we're there's something about intention here. She's yeah. trying to die, yeah. but she wants Mars to kill her. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, she's standing there um, uh, looking at... What's described as one of the unsolved puzzles of geology that is the long run out, and she's thinking, well, I'll learn something about why the long run out happens, but again, we have that idea of you know here here's a here's a process or a phenomenon that uh, of movement of traveling um that comes to that both moves and comes to an end without people being exactly sure of how or why that works or what the exact combination of forces is. And Anne sort of stakes her life there, um, both in this moment of hopelessness and in this desire for a kind of determinacy that she doesn't feel like she has any access finality, to anymore. Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, I, 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 I this prologue, it's really interesting. I mean, there's so much to say, actually, because the the fact that these this the prologue and the the chapter proper are both from her point of view is so Mm. interesting and important but what uh it makes me uh think about the that problem of scale again um because the prologue takes place in truly a moment like less than an hour right but it's uh it's a um expanded moment it's Mm -hmm. a Mm -hmm. a, a telescoping moment Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh you know one thing is happening she is standing still looking at this avalanche she moves a few steps to the right or something like that and it saves her life uh unintentionally but uh, in a gesture to simon she moves in a way that actually saves her but she does one thing she stands and she stares essentially Mm -hmm. um and in that time she has all of these thoughts and we get all of this information about um geology and 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 the geology of avalanches and and also her mind state and her um, psychology and what's going on uh so it's this uh what am i trying to say what's the word um expanded but it's uh, telescoped out but it's um i don't know there's a better word for it uh wh- where where you where you this one moment is sort of ballooned into like several pages whereas right. in later in the chapter things would happen faster right. at, a, at an exp- at, a, at an accelerated scale although still normal but um
1: so it's interesting to think, sorry to Go interrupt ahead. you, but it's interesting to think that that, because um, I think the chapter, this chapter is a lot about um, time, time and yeah. the relation of um, uh, human temporality to geological or areological time. I mean, we know that Anna's had a thought before about how long the history of Mars is, mm-hmm. um, and that that's kind of a complicated thought for her because her desire is let's not change this place but when you think that it has a history of course you know it must be changing all the time um because we're here um in that that it's clear and and there is something about the state of both being isolated and of losing your language which is at least the way that she thinks to herself about what's what happens to her um In her times of great crisis after uh, Frank's death and now after Simon's, uh, after Frank's death and thinking that Peter is dead and now after Simon's death. I mean, she's in this kind of triple uh, mourning, um, uh, but also she's here like looking at speeded up phenomena on the on this planet right stuff is happening including these avalanches and and landslides are happening partly because of all of the changes that have taken place because of the terraforming because of the falling of the elevator cable presumably all of these all of these human caused effects have produced a condition of a certain kind of speed up just as terraforming is a speed up of a of a process right. um, and we talked really early on about how the intervention that Sachs makes very early um, uh, produces a condition of speed up, mm-hmm. right? They're going to do slow terraforming, but mm-hmm. Sachs has to like slip in a little bit something mm-hmm. to make it go faster. Um, and we know that all the first 100 are living also in a, con- in a different kind of temporal condition than the one that we experience because they're going to live for a very long time. Right. And no one knows what that means yet. Right.
0: There are pioneers in that regard as well. And and
1: Anne Anne has experienced the, um, I guess we don't know for sure, but I think post the treatments, Simon is the first one of them to die, not from accident, but from disease. And we talked about in the Nergal chapter how freaky to Nergal that sort of death is, you know, and ill health is, Mm -hmm. is freaky to him. Um... Yeah. So we have all of these like different versions of time here that I, I think are really fascinating. One of the, in, including whatever effect it has had on Anne that makes her wish for an ending to her life. Yeah. But an ending that she doesn't think that she can, I mean, she could kill herself yeah. in a more direct way. Yeah. But instead it's like she's just risking it, yeah. risking death, yeah. right? Wanting to have an end from someplace else. Uh, yeah.
0: So, the, I mean, there's so much, again, uh, to say about that. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, that that impulse to keep Mars the way it is to say, don't don't change it, even though knowing that it has a billion year hit multi billion year history and that it is always changing this this desire to keep it frozen. Right. Is in a sense a desire for death. Right. It's a right. death drive. Right. Um in that Freudian mm. sense of like, let's get the back to stasis, right? right? So you have that death drive, but you also have this, you, you know, you can't bring it about yourself. You can't kill yourself. There, there's still right. this kind of, um, as, as Robinson says actually in the Huffington Post uh, article, hope exists at the cellular level, mm-hmm. he says. Mm-hmm. And so there's some life force that keeps you from doing that. Yet Anne is in a position where she doesn't want to live anymore, and she can't also stake that desire against her own life. She's not there's no choice. That, right. There is no right. other choice. I believe this ends. <clears throat> yes, there was no other choice. Shakata Ganai, uh at the bottom of one sixteen at the end of the of the prologue. And yet she doesn't want to basically stake anything else. So on one fourteen at the bottom paragraph, she says so she sees, she hears the thing, she sees it happening. She adjusted the focus of her uh, binoculars for the front edge of the slide, just visible as a dark churning mass under the tumbling dust cloud. She could feel her hand trembling against her helmet, but, the, but other than that, she felt nothing no fear, no regret, nothing. In fact, nothing in fact, but a sense of release. All over at last, and not her fault. No one could blame her for it. She had always said that the terraforming would kill her. She laughed briefly and then squinted, trying to get a better focus on the front edge of the slide. For her, it's all about avoiding responsibility. It's about saying, (coughs) it's about, because, and, and a lot of it, I mean, I think the driving, too, is this kind of uh, uh, rehearsal of the trauma of Frank Chalmers' death being her fault. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and she, do, she wants to avoid uh, complicity. She wants to avoid responsibility. She wants to avoid things being her fault. She is so wedded to this notion that, and throughout the chapter, she's wedded to this notion that contingency is the only thing. Simon died, but I'm the one who takes on all the radiation because I've been outside all the time, but Simon's the one right, who died of right. cancer, right. And the operation of the chapter, the, the end result of it is for her to connect with the Reds and basically pick up the mantle uh, or pick up the, the burden of responsibility to say, I have to reinsert my, you know, that, that, that the, 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 the things that are happening to Mars, the things they're doing to Mars are provoking her into action that will actually be a kind of a risk where she will have to actually risk herself, and by risking herself, what what we mean, what what I think is meant by that is risking taking responsibility for something, risking being potentially the cause of a bad thing happening, Mm -hmm. uh, being at fault for something else.
1: Yeah, and I think also, I mean, I think that's so, that's really beautifully put, and I think it's also, so part of, one of the threads of this chapter is about Anne, coming into the political, mm-hmm. something that she has resisted, even though we know early on, she politicked in her desire, you know, and she is seen as, oh, it's the Clay, uh, what's Sansa's Cla- last name? Russell Claiborne The Debate. Russell Claiborne debates, you know, so she's seen as this political figure, but she has resisted that, so part of the movement of the chapter, is to bring her into, yeah. a, a form of political life, um, and, you know, one way that we can think about what politics is is politics is about uh, negotiating and struggling uh, toward having a stake in the future, mm-hmm. right? Politics is is about making, right, yeah. and, and it's about making toward some kind of future possibility. Um, so, and and I think it's right that that involves her being willing to take on responsibility. I think it also involves her um, being willing to relinquish the thing. Um, that she has prized and that she seems to have even prized in her relationship with Simon, which is a kind of autonomy, Mm -hmm. a a feeling that she is on her own. Um, Because that also is, is deeply in the best sense, what the political is about. It's about collectivity. It's about collective intention toward the future. Um, But I wanted to add one thing in there and this, because just because I think this is another thought here. Um, that some of, so her, her frozenness, her inability to speak, um, her desire, uh, to be killed, um, uh, to not have responsibility, um, I think that is all about mourning, Mm -hmm. um, and it's about, you know, uh, mourning is not a condition of being outside of time, it's about a condition of being in a weird kind of time, Mm. a kind of time that you hope that, an accident will come yeah. and end for you, right? Um, but in, instead, you just you live in the time of of yeah. mourning, mm-hmm. um, and it, you know, and if we fo- if we follow that in a like Freudy way, like uh, that can become a whole way of life for you. It can yeah. become a melancholia, right? Yeah. It can become just the way that you are. Yeah. Um. But so, some of what she wants is to get out of the time of mourning, and and we see Coyote begin to bring her out of the time of mourning into another time which is historical time yes. political time the time of collective life and I think that's that's deeply hopeful but the, the other thing that really interests me in this chapter that I didn't think about reading it the first time and has struck me this time is that on the one hand her frozenness we can understand on those kind of terms these psychoanalytic terms or just like I don't know if you've experienced a death of somebody that you love, you can relate to that feeling of like the world is moving, but my way of moving is not the way that the world is moving. I mean, it's, you know, you can relate to that. Um, But the other thing is, I, I think there's a way in which she also is wrestling with a new version of the kind of scientist she is because she, she has a moment in this chapter Where she thinks to herself, I've always thought that my defense of Mars and my stance against terraforming was purely rational. Right. And we hear the echo of Sachs Mm -hmm. there, right? Mm -hmm. Their commonality. Mm -hmm. Purely rational. And she recognizes now how much it's about anger. Yeah. How much it's about affective relations. Yeah. um, Which is amazing, right? Realizing... Oh, I was what I thought was, you know, this is just purely the outcome of a set of logical processes was actually like overdetermined by uh, by feeling. Yeah. Um, which I think is great. That's really interesting. But I think there's also a way in which the thing that she cares about, um, Mars, those stones, avalanches, um, the, you know, aerophysical features of the world. Those are things that are. We don't have a good way of thinking about what it means to care about those things. Right. She has geology, right? Right. right. Um, she has her incredible knowledge. Right. Um, But unlike, say, uh, I want to, you know, mount a defense of this beautiful ecosystem in which there are these, you know, charismatic megafauna of some kind. Yeah, yeah. And Save I can, the polar bear. Exactly. And I can send you, you know, and, and this is not in any way to say that we shouldn't care about those things. But, I say we should fuck the polar bears. But what, is it, what, is it, what does it look like um, to have care about something like rocks? Yeah or a, f- a geophysical formation um that's actually quite difficult to think about what is it what does it look like to think that the non-living matters yeah. um and that you're entangled with the non-living um so so there's a kind of you know when we when we think about things like saving animals or maybe even like saving you know magnificent you know the sequoias right, or something yeah. like that right magnificent Big, big plants. Right. <laughs> uh, you know, we think, oh, we're living and it's our livingness that somehow matters. But like the stuff that Anne cares about is not is not the living. Um, but it's not dead stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's also not static stuff because this whole chapter is about. Uh, right. The planet moving. moving yeah. It's about its movements. Well,
0: animation, what is, the, An- you know, what's the line yeah. between animation and inanimation? Yeah. The yeah. animate and inanimate.
1: And what is it, you know, so what kind of experience of, you know, time or yeah. or your own human livingness do you have when you're uh, in a deep and committed relationship with rocks? Yeah. Um, and that, you know, and I think that, you know, the temptation is to think like, well, that, the person who has that relationship to stones is weird, Um. And, you know, and yeah, she's clearly weird. But also, this is telling us about something that we don't know how to think about. So it seems to me like she, when she loses her language, it is about this story about isolation and what it is to mourn. But it's also a little bit about what does it mean to be intensely entangled and involved with uh, things that we actually don't have really good language for talking about that I think we can describe... Are people not me, but mm-hmm. people who are you know educated in the geophysical sciences? Our future guests, <laughs> you know, can describe and think about. Uh, yeah. Anyway, I just I think that's I think that's there in this chapter too.
0: I think I think that mm. was really uh, amazingly put. That's a really great thought, and it makes me think back to Red Mars and getting rid of John, Frank, and Arcady. Mm-hmm. These three. Charismatic men who we kind of know have a sense of what they stand for on the human level. Their alliances are to human ideas, right? Of power, of happiness, of uh, whatever Katie likes, (laughs) you know, like freedom, 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 right? And to get rid of them means to be thrown back on uh, Mm. a prior set of assumptions that are way, way, way more. Uh, elemental and important for right. for moving on. Like we're not talking about human freedom. We're not talking about happiness. We're not talking about the exercise of power. We're talking about very basic physical relations of and and, and sort of affective relations between human beings and rocks. Yeah. You know, like put aside. You know, all the trees are going to be extinct in 300 years because of global warming. Polar bears are doomed. <laughs> you know, our gut flora and our gut fauna good luck fellas you know we <laughs> have to reinvent our entire relationship to the physical universe based on um what we've been doing to the planet right and what we've been doing to each other so both uh politically and um and environmentally right like these are these are the fundamental these are the fundamental questions not well, whether freedom is good or whatever
1: well and i think that the uh, you know the sort of um and and this is stuff that I mean obviously these are not ideas I've generated out of my own brain <laughs> but stuff that I've been reading about but I I think that the um there's such an interesting kind of this chapter really lets you think that um, when what we do is we prioritize uh, the living we think about the living as opposed to the dead and mm-hmm. this chapter is certainly about the living and the dead and right. there's a point at which Anne thinks of herself as living in pre posthumous yeah. time yeah um or as a zombie well as a stone
0: did she say z- zombie
1: she says zombie really zombie vengeance oh
0: zombie vengeance um but she also tries to like think like a stone but she like tries to be to think like, like, like a stone. stone
1: and so what's int- so what interests me about that is um i think I think it's easy to slide that oh living v dead opposition into uh living things v things like stones, but stones aren't dead right they're just not alive right there's right. something different right, there right, and right. so again, I think again there's a way i mean so if you think of the kind of like uh I feel like at the beginning that we made some kind of problem of other minds joke <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. but if you think about that as yeah you know that's this that's supposed to be this sort of here's this fundamental question which, yeah. is, which is what you do with the mind that isn't yours and um, what do you do when the mind that isn't yours is the is the mind of a bat right right but what do you do when the thing that isn't you um, doesn't seem to be minded at all it in the way have a mind. right it doesn't have yeah. a mind but is a stone um, you know the ways in which we we think about that like we want to shunt that off into Mm -hmm. this category of the non-living and yet this matters incredibly
0: it almost seems like the problem of other minds isn't really that much of a problem at all it's because it it's the problem of other minds not the problem of other and rocks are other i mean you can sit there and imagine what it would like to be what it would be like to be a bat you know we have movies about that they're called batman movies (laughs)
1: Oh my god! Wait, side sidebar. Huh? I, was, I was just walking downtown. <laughs> those
0: are what those movies are about, right? Uh,
1: I was just walking downtown, and I was walking like behind a like maybe a, a camp group of campers mm-hmm. who were probably uh, second or third grade, I would say. And a couple of the boys were talking about superheroes, mm-hmm. um, and a little girl in like this classic like she's in just like her full little girl confidence uh-huh. says. <clears throat> There is no such thing as superheroes. <laughs> and a little boy walking next to her, who is clearly, like, sort of influenced by this statement of hers, uh-huh. says... Has a
0: crush on her, yeah. It says,
1: yeah, there's no such thing as, su- as superheroes, but there is such a thing as magic. <laughs> <laughs> he's right it was so endearing he's not wrong it was so endearing i felt Um, like i want you to come to my science fiction class.
0: yeah i only have a few questions for you (laughs) i've got some questions for you young man but um yeah no the problem of other minds uh is you know you know what it has to have a mind like it's not that big of a problem but what is it to be to like not have a mind at all and still to exist that would be a real problem. We haven't even, it's already been an hour and we haven't even talked about the book yet. So that's a good sign. I think, Um, Uh. (laughs) I mean, like we haven't gotten in any hard quotes basically, but yeah. Yeah. So listen, all this stuff is there. All the stuff is there. Let's, but yeah, let's plow on through and keep uh, going. Um, So like, um, so, you know, the, it's a very short chapter. She basically drives around, looks at rocks, runs into a coyote and then goes and visits Zygote um uh there's another there's a lot of but there's a lot of just really rich stuff in here there's the part where um well i i wanted to say one thing that there's this sense that okay so this long run out right it's this it's this uh avalanche that just kind of sli- keeps going and sliding horizontally right and it can slide horizontally many many dozens of kilometers and it's coming right at her. And she kind of gives herself up, decides to give herself up to it. But she also decides to step aside uh, just a few steps in deference to Simon. Because Simon wouldn't like it if she just let it come. So she sort of steps aside to uh, uh, to make, say, a prayer or something like that. And at the top of 116, again... Um, she went down on one knee. So as a gesture to his spirit, she stepped off the low lava lava dike and went down onto one knee behind it. The coarse grain of its basalt was dull in the brown light. She felt the vibrations, looked up at the sky. She had done what she could. No one could fault her again, mm-hmm. avoiding fault. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it was foolish to think that way. No one would ever know what she did here. Not even Simon. He was gone. Um, And then, of course, she stepped right into a perfect spot for the entire avalanche to go right by her and, you know, affirming her view that nothing exists in the world except for contingency. Um, But it's also that she's kind of, to me, she's a figure that's cursed to live. Yeah. You know, like she's the figure who can't die. She's like Nosferatu or something, like that. <laughs> <laughs> or you know, or Cain. She's doomed to wander the earth uh, or the Mars, um, as far as as far as she's con- concerned. Right,
1: um, right. Well, and, the, and 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 part of it is that sort of. I mean, I think what happens by the end of the chapter is that the burden she's she realizes that the burden she carries or what she feels like is her. Uh, sort of hers alone Mm -hmm. that care for Mars that care for um, this non-living world isn't hers alone Mm -hmm. um, Mm. that actually that this is a care that's shared with many people and it's a care that can activate uh, a collective collective care you
0: you said that uh you said coyote is trying to activate her into a form of political life and i almost want to say uh what he's activating her into is life which is political yeah yeah there's no escape like if you're alive you're living politically yeah whether you want to uh, uh face that truth or not you're living politically right right and and for her To acknowledge that she is alive is for her to acknowledge that she has to be political, that she has to be hooked in with other people, which is basically what being political is, is being hooked in with other people. Right,
1: right, right, right. And then, I mean, and he brings her not only into, and this, uh, I wonder if this is the sort of. The way in which I mean, it's so hard to know anything about Coyote, but he is kind of this figure of generosity because because mm-hmm. he, he does bring her not only into life that is into right. political life, into life with others, or into noticing that she is living life with others, um, but he brings her into politics proper Absolutely. because he brings her. I mean, this is
0: he brings her to the underground,
1: and this is the first time we realize that the Reds are a party. Yeah. Really, I mean, I guess we've kind of we've heard bits and pieces about that, but yeah. Uh, they're a party. They're organizing. Mm-hmm. They have plans. Mm-hmm. They have things that they want to make happen. Yeah. And they have a hero.
0: They have plans. And they it's Anne. Pa- yeah, it's Anne. Like the end of the chapter, we'll just flash to the end of the chapter uh, on page 135. You know, they, they come into this thing. They go down an elevator. Uh, they walk into a big giant room. All these people are at long tables about to eat. One person sees her. He, f- he or she freezes, um, puts down the water bottle. Stares at her. Someone notices that he's staring at her. They turn around and stare at at her. Everyone notices that people are staring at her. They, um, The people at one table saw her and stopped what they were doing, and the people at the next table noticed that and looked around and saw her and likewise stopped, and so the effect rippled out through the room until they had all gone still. Then one stood and another, and in a ragged motion, they all rose to their feet. For a moment, everything was as if frozen. Then they began to applaud, their hands flailing wildly, their faces gleaming, and then they cheered. Uh, she's like a celebrity mm. and she didn't yeah. even know. Like, she's like Elvis or something. Yeah. And like, who knew? Or she's, she's
1: she's already leading the party and yeah. she didn't even know.
0: She's already got a whole, yeah, she's got a whole devoted following. And she's just been driving around in a rock, uh, yeah. being angry and bitter for this whole time. Yeah. And trying yeah. to just not, she's trying to avoid history, and her memories, and the future. And just trying to die and be frozen. And, and it turns out, like, there's been this whole Livingness under the ground, underground, that 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 um, just waiting for her. Right, right, right,
1: right. And part and part of what happens then is, you know, because that that last scene, which is an amazing scene, and it's hard to think about Anne in that moment because, given that we know Anne relatively well at that moment, and I, I think the, I mean, when I read that, I feel touched and mm-hmm. moved by it, but I also just imagine her
0: feeling alarmed yeah, and probably like um, rolling her eyes or something yeah i mean
1: you know miming miming contempt while yeah. inside feeling you know utter inadequacy yeah, to being part of, the, definitely. Part of this yeah, scene definitely uh, but but we get the lead-up to that uh describes wild fretted terrain mm. um they they taxi into a hangar cut into the side of a mesa mm-hmm. um you know so so suddenly we get human living uh, and the um, the planetary form of Mars mm-hmm. blended together. So it's both like Anne is going to the place where there are other people who care about what she cares about and also a reminder that things have already happened as yeah, so often. Things are happening. Things have already happened. Yeah. Things are already in motion. Right. Um, on the one hand, there will be politics and struggle and intentionality and on the other hand, it's already going on. Mm-hmm. It's already started. The circumstances are not the circumstances of your own that mm-hmm. you would choose mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. and yet it's also like this beautiful moment of people being excited together and feeling you yeah. know the mutuality of a project
0: yeah um there's the part where she uh discusses Mars's names or she is driving around and the, she has the, the, the names AI. Of the,
1: the names of the features the names of the features
0: yeah um and I wonder what you thought about that um, in terms of just what its purpose is in the chapter or or what it's doing. For her it's a kind of way to avoid thinking about the past remembering anything. She's actively trying to forget things and not remember them so she's kind of listening to her AI or or just reading random stuff and uh, it's this section on um, 120-121 where And I didn't know this about planets and how their features are named, but um, on Venus, uh, Venus's features were named after famous women. Mercury's features were all named after great artists. Only on Mars did they walk around in a horrendous mishmash of the dreams of the past, Mm. causing who knew what disastrous misapprehensions (laughs) of the real terrain, right?
1: Yeah, so she thinks about uh, um looking up uh, through his telescope and thinking that he sees canals and beginning to name things uh, on 120. Uh, it was a tribute to a certain power he had had, a power evocative, if not consistent. Mm-hmm. He had been a classical scholar Uh, and a student of biblical astronomy, and among his names there were Latin, Greek, Biblical, and Homeric references all mixed together. But he had a good ear somehow. Uh, One proof of his talent was the contrast between his maps and the competing Martian maps of the 19th century. A map by an Englishman named Proctor, for instance, had relied on the sketches of Reverend William Dawes, and so on Proctor's Mars, uh, there was a Dawes continent, a Dawes ocean, a Dawes straight, a Dawes sea, a Dawes Frugbe- so um and a beer sea. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there we have the kind of like clunky, unimaginative naming as opposed to Schiaparelli's like yeah. uh, uh, fanciful naming. But Anne worries about it. Uh, the Lake of the Sun, the Plain of... She's translating here. Right. The Lake of the Sun, the Plain of Gold, the Red Sea, Peacock Mountain, the Lake of the Phoenix, Samaria, Arcadia, the Gulf of Pearls, the Gordian Knot, Styx, Hades, Utopia. So one of the things that's interesting she doesn't like it because it's inconsistent. she admits that he was a good namer mm-hmm. um but there's this inconsistency. The names have nothing to do with the things themselves right
0: yeah um like like all names do
1: right it's a, it's unlike what a name should be right a very large mountain, a very deep <laughs> trench uh I'm you know uh uh but it it raises sort of one the you know the instability, just how much like nomenclature um is produced by imagination just as much as it's produced by the scientific process, Um, which is, you know, certainly absolutely
0: true, Mm -hmm. including,
1: uh, you know, the classification of organisms is also uh, shot through with, you know, human conceits about how things are supposed to be. Um, She doesn't like it because it's inconsistent and she doesn't like it because it's deceptive. And we could flash back to John Boone, who, loves that multitude of Mm -hmm. names. And he loves that Mars is a place where every place on Mars calls up, you know, uh, some name from a name from the ancient world, a name from philosophy, Mm -hmm. um, a name from multiple languages. And also like all of the names from the history of science fiction starting in the 19th century, Yeah, you know? Right. Um, And for John, like that's like, that's part of the way in which this is this, you know, this, this space of human imagination and a real space and the space of human possibility. And for Anne, it's like, this is a, a mixing up of things that keeps us thinking that's my fantasy world mm. as opposed to, you know, Oh, the peacock
0: mountain, peacock mountain,
1: um, as opposed to that's a real that's the place thing. Yeah. that we should try to know something about in it. Itself.
0: Yeah, that's really great point. Like John Boone is the one who invents the the song with all of Mars, the chant with right, all the of Mars' names. And like that chant it does so much because it sort of it, it helps to unify in it but it unifies in a fantasy, right? But that also just calls to question, you know, um just human nature of you know, we're imag- we're imagining Creatures. we're imaging creatures right. we create images we create symbols and signs mm. we're signifying we're the signifying monkey you know um.
1: <laughs> right right well and i mean and we could think of you know then again of Arcadi too saying we can't just build for functionality right. We, from the right. very beginning we should be building for beauty because that's part of who we are yeah. i mean and it's this sort of it's also this movement between um uh I don't know, there's like a movement between, uh, or a sort of tension between versions of complexity, Mm -hmm. too, uh, which I think we see in the, when Nirgal has his conversation with Sachs, right? Um, What's the version of complexity that feels satisfying because you have, you think you have the capacity to know it, and the complexity is just like the lure or the excitement? What's the version of complexity that's frustrating because it points out to you that you can't know it all, Um, Anne wants to be able to separate out different kinds of, you know, um, you know, she wants the complexity of uh, her disciplinary knowledge. Mm -hmm. Um, She doesn't like the way in which that comes through all of these overlays of other stuff. Um, But I think that also has something to do with this, how she's positioned in the, you know, there's a kind of, um, there's this struggle around, you know, here she's being positioned in a way in relation to something like the real or the material. I mean, she's she is here in the chapter in relation to death.
0: hmm
1: You know, this kind of um, ultimate, ultimate um, real. materiality. Yeah. Uh, the real. The, um, uh, she's positioned in relation to stone. It's on 125 when she... Um, she fought to see nothing but rock, to mm-hmm. think like a stone, Right, um, which we can think in relation to this, right? There is an attempt... I mean, on the one hand, that's her wanting to shut herself off. That's her wanting to be frozen. You know, she'd rather be non-living at this point. But we could also think... But this is also her, the geologist turned aerologist, who is trying to have a kind of thought that a human mind has trouble mm-hmm. having, which is... Um, what is it to to really see a rock? What mm-hmm. is it to, th- quote, think like a stone? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's both of those things at, at once, you yeah. know? Um, what kind of, you know, and for her, she doesn't want it to be an imaginative act or an affective relation to think like a stone. She wants that to be logical, right? right? The logic. Yeah. But of course, you, you know, that. yeah. That's not I how mean, we work. It's Peacock Mountain. It's Peacock Mountain.
0: <laughs> um, it calls me back again to the... Um, to the uh long run to the um prologue where oh says um as she's seeing it uh, as she's seeing the long round out approach her she was being f- approached by a phenomenological mystery which is not only the mystery of the avalanche and how it works but also the mystery of death this is a phenomenological mystery that we just simply don't and can't have access to mm-hmm. right um uh, that we 're sort of and, and going back to one hundred and twenty five that we 're caught in the random flux of universal contingency, nothing mattered, and yet and yet right um, that nothing matters where' everything is contingent, but there 's this still this buried kernel of hope of activity ripe, of ripe, action ripe. of um, mm. of efficacy of intentionality right. Um, Right. On the p- right, right yeah, bottom ahead. of
1: 126. Uh-huh. She uh right after the right. that great part you're talking about earlier about the vent effect. Yeah. Uh so, so awesome. Uh uh and then it begins to snow, mm-hmm. right? The chain, right? This is a different place than the place that she came to. This is a different planet than the planet that she came to. Uh Anne staggered aimlessly, pointlessly until she twisted an ankle and stopped. And one of the things that's happening in this chapter is like, she is almost dying yeah. over and over, over again. And over. Yeah. Uh, uh, her breath racking in and out of her, a rock clutched in each yeah. cl- cold gloved hand. Yeah. She understood that the long run out was running still and mud snow pelted down out of the black air, burying the plane. I mean, and the the sort of, all of those the scene, the imagery is also at the very least double sided. Because yeah. on the one hand, the long run out is running still means something is still headed toward her Her yeah. potential death is still headed toward her. But on the other hand, it's this image of a kind of a movement that that you know there isn't a, yet an explanation for.
0: Or even the ability to perceive or see. Yeah. Right. Right.
1: Right. And and in that way, it's like forward motion is still going on. Yeah. The snow is coming down, but it's also mud that's coming down. Black
0: snow, right? Um, and she, just her gripping the two rocks just kind of uh, out of her mind. I, I love that. I love that image, too. On Yeah. Um, but so what's been happening that she has discovered, which, which is the, the motivating force for Coyote to be able to activate her, is she's been detecting these Mars quakes all over the place. And she's speculating about what the per- what the cause of that might be, and what happens is she stumbles upon a drilling operation, and deduces that what they're doing is drilling the water or, or mining the water under the surface, <coughs> and bringing it to to the surface. It's um, freezing, but and it eventually freeze but it'll eventually get warm enough where it will not be frozen it will be a liquid ocean on the surface of mars the weight of the water is pushing down the regolith which helps to pump up more water and so what they're doing is and she also deduces they're probably blowing up nuclear uh, bombs under the surface to to heat to superheat that and and make it even faster, so she's discovering that they're that they're doing this process, that they're engaging in this um, uh, uh, superheating of the of the surface. Much of it is based on her own research and findings, right, right. That she has discovered, and it has gotten out that there is a massive underground ocean uh, in the northern hemisphere of Mars. And that the northern hemisphere of Mars is going to become an ocean again, or, or it will become an ocean. Right. Um, and one of the ways, one of the things that she sees, um, so she sees this enormous drill and she sees the ice and she figures it all out. And as she sees all this, she also notices objects the size of ants on the surface. And these are human beings ice skating. And so great. You're kind of left with, you know, for her and she staggers back to her car, you know, wordless and like stunned. And she just kind of sits there in front of the microwave, um, catching her breath and trying to wrap her mind around this. And I all I can imagine is that what's going through her mind is, is this why we came to Mars? Right. So people could ice right. skate? Right, <laughs> exactly. You know, is this why we did this? So there could be ice skating on Mars, right. you know? Right, right. Um.
1: Right, I mean, it's, and so again, you know, she she has been in her own time, mm-hmm. um, and there's that big picture time of Mars, Mars's areological time, um, but also human time has been running in a different way, too, in this condition of, you know, these hugely speeded up transformations happening so much faster than anyone would have thought Um uh refigure the planet is being totally refigured mm-hmm. totally refigured um and 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 they and and so then you know in such conditions what do the reds ask for do they ask for oh can we have some uh can we have some uh planetary parks where you right. don't make changes can right. we just slow down the process a little bit? What would what would it be yeah. to to be a red yeah. on Mars, right. given that history is already happening? Yeah, given that people are already ice skating.
0: Yeah, and not only are we faced with that um, political conflict between the Reds and the terraformers, right? But um, what happens also late? So. Th- uh, as she staggers back to her car, she, she Coyote then hooks back up with her, and then they go and visit zygote or gamete, mm. right? And um, on Ga- in gamete, uh, some of the younger brood of Hiroko are there hanging out. Jackie, Nergal, Dow, um, Ka- and and, sh- and there's this moment where, you know, they're all about 25 years old. The youngest people are like 16, and Kasai's generation is like 50. Yeah. And the first 100 and their generation are going to live forever and all of these people are going to live forever. And all of the people who have been born on Mars have a certain idea of what Mars is and what they want it to be, and all of the people who are on Earth have a certain idea of Mars and what they want it to be, and all of the people who have the first 100 the first 100 have their own idea and ideas of what Mars is and what it should be, right? And so on this notion of time and on this notion of scale and on this notion of thinking about revolution and revolutionary time and political change, if revolutionary time linked in with the kind of geological time is a multi-generational, you know, it takes a very long time for change to occur. So it's a multi-generational struggle on that level. It's now going to be a multi-generational struggle on the level of the first hundred their kids, the kids' kids, because all of them, you can't count on people dying anymore. Right, right. It's that thing of the previous um, paradigm, you have to wait for the people to die, and the people aren't dying anymore, and in fact, they have tenure. The first right. hundred have <laughs> tenure. right. right. Right, the first hundred have tenure, as well as everybody on Earth who's getting the treatment, they have tenure too. So it's not just a struggle between Earth and Mars, it's also going to be a struggle within Mars, within the multi-generations, the several generations that inhabit Mars and have different ideas about it. So that looks forward very far actually into blue Mars, where that kind of political thing uh, really takes place, uh, takes a much stronger role right. but when she's on in gamete she already sees that jackie has a lot of political talent and uh, is going to be a force to be reckoned with and that even nergal who she admires so much and can actually is one of the few young people that she can um, uh, 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 relate to even he is, is sort of in her thrall in a certain sense and this really sort of troubles her
1: right right yeah it's interesting that she um she has this very acute observation of the younger people um and i mean and once again we see that the the line between or what it take what it takes to form a person's politics Mm -hmm. um uh is not something that's separate from their uh familial and affective and um you know other kinds of relations in fact like all of their, all of the parts of their sociality are tangled up together, and that's that's part of what she sees in in Jackie, mm-hmm. uh, someone whose power is both political power and also she has this erotic power. She has the power of like her, you know, I'm the bossy queen of all of you. I mean, so so we see that that you know uh, these realms, these supposedly separate realms, like the scientific, the domestic, uh, the erotic. The political, the social, are not in fact separate at all, but but really tangled up together, mm-hmm. um, which I, I think that has something to do with also her, you know, she has that keen observation, I and mean, it's also, int- we get her interesting note about Hiroko. Mm-hmm. Um, Anna never in her life. This mm-hmm. is on one thirty three. Anna never in her life managed to have a normal conversation with Hiroko, who seemed an alien consciousness yeah. with entirely different meanings for all the words in the language. And despite her brilliance at ecosystem design, not really a scientist at all, but some kind of prophet. I think it's funny that that um, that she sees Hiroko that way. Um, but I think that she and her Anna and Hiroko have a thing in common, which. I mean, Hiroko has a seems to have a vocabulary for the things that she is interested in bringing about on Mars. Yeah. That vocabulary about Virididas, yeah. um, the, the Shinto vocabulary, kami, the spirit of the the mm. place, the spirit that um, resides in certain kinds of natural objects. Um, but Anne is is similarly seeking the vocabulary that's unique to Mars. Mm-hmm. Um, right or the vocabulary that's unique to the kind of thing and she she also is not getting it from her like you know Hiroko has reached out to um, various kinds of spirituality to produce her account of what what Mars what Mars life is yeah Um, and you know Anne doesn't make that reach but but in some ways like she that is kind of the reach she maybe needs to be making because her Science isn't giving her the words. Yeah,
0: uh, you, well, Anne lacks any kind of spirituality, right? Right. Um, Phyllis, on the other hand, who will who has returned, and dun, she, dun, she dun. has lived, <laughs> and she will return in part four with a vengeance. <laughs> uh, for gra- uh, uh, spoiler spoiler alert, alert. You know, has uh, a, a spiritual. She's a Christian fundamentalist. Right. Um so th- that'll be interesting to see uh how that plays out. Um and yeah, the the and so but yes, Anne's devotion to science has left her um somewhat deficient in terms of being able to wrap her mind around all of this as well as and and in that way again, she's very similar to Sachs.
1: Yeah. Who doesn't yeah.
0: believe in politics or he doesn't understand it. It's too confusing. It's not scientific, right?
1: But I think here, when, when Anne has that, that moment of thinking, uh, uh, this is on 129, um, uh, she's thinking about the Reds. Mm-hmm. Um, a bunch of radicals, yeah. not really her type, Anne right. thought, feeling a residual sensation that her objection to terraforming was a rational, scientific thing. Or at least a defensible, ethical, or aesthetic position. Mm -hmm. But then the anger burned through her again in a flash, and she shook her head, Mm -hmm. disgusted at herself. Mm -hmm. Who was she to judge the ethics of the Reds? Mm -hmm. At least they had expressed their anger. They had lashed out. Perhaps they felt better, even if they hadn't accomplished anything.
0: That's the other thing about... That she doesn't want anything to be her fault. She doesn't want to take responsibility for anything, but she's filled with all this anger. And where do right. you do with it? Where do you direct it? And at least the Reds are directing it somewhere. And at the very minimum, they probably feel better. Right, right, right. <laughs> so do something with right. it.
1: Right. Well, and her, like, when she describes it as it's a residual sensation yeah. that, that that her her objection to terraforming was purely scientific right. so we see like even within her there's this kind of i mean the language of residual makes us think about yeah. like even with in her intellectual personal felt history you know, that idea that M- no, I'm a scientist right. and that's why I hold this position has become something residual. And something residual yeah. still matters. Yeah, it's yeah. not that that's not true anymore. Yeah. It's not that that isn't important anymore. Mm-hmm. It's just that that has stopped being the dominant for mm-hmm. her. Um, and anger, and then this thought anger lets you do something you should do something with your anger right that maybe has become the dominant and it, and it's something about the interplay between the dominant and the residual that will let the new thing emerge which mm. it, which will be her her politics mm-hmm. the forming of a the forming of a red politics or her participation in a red politics but you know that to think to go back to that point about um language mm-hmm. right i mean i i think it is really it's interesting to think that part of what Hiroko has done is to give um, to give a language, a vocabulary, um, and, a, and a conceptual system that does seem to also be, yeah, is also a belief system mm-hmm. uh, to help with the newness um, to to, yeah. to to draw on these old spiritual traditions. To talk about newness, talk about things that, that, you know, science, even a science like hers that is so uh, broad-based or capacious in what it brings together, can't think about. I think this links to the dream that Anne mm. has right before the end of the chapter, which is such a great, I mean, again, we talked yeah. before about dreams in this book. They're really so, they're so great. Um. Uh, um. So she see oh, and then we have that weird, uncanny moment where she sees Sax and he has a new face.
0: <laughs> it's great, and that, that that that's not a dream. That's going to look forward to next to the next part um, in a really, you know, the next part is finally a Sax chapter. Um, uh, so, but yeah, Sax approaches her and she recognizes him after she sees him move, but he has a different face.
1: It's the cl- I mean, it's this great moment of like um, playing off uncanniness. Yeah. Um, uh She looked at the water he came over and tried to talk to her strangely unsax like nicer looking now a handsome old coot yeah <laughs> what a great phrase uh but it was still the old sax. and her anger filled her up so much she could hardly think mm-hmm. uh hardly remember what they were talking about from one second to the next you really do look different was all she could recall inanities like that looking at him she thought he will never change so he looks different, but the only thing she can think is he'll never change. Mm. That's that's an amazing moment. And then she uh, she falls a, into a kind of sleep and had a dream. Mm-hmm. All the first hundred were standing there, standing around her, the living and the dead. Sax at their center with his old face and that dangerous new look of distress. Because Sax has changed. Uh, he said, net gain in complexity. Vlad and Ursula said, net gain in health. Hiroko said, net gain in beauty. Nadia said, net gain in goodness. Maya said, net gain in emotional intensity. And behind her, John and Frank rolled their eyes. Arkady said, net gain in freedom. Michelle said, net gain in understanding. From the back, Frank said, net gain in power. And John elbowed him and cried, net gain in happiness. And then they all stared at Anne, and she stood up quivering with rage and fear, understanding that she alone among them did not believe in the possibility of the net gain of anything at all. That she was some kind of crazy reactionary, and all she could do was point a shaking finger at them and say, Mars, Mars, Mars. Yeah. Where I think, again, I mean, there, again, yeah. we could think of, you know, John's, John Sufi chant of all yeah. the names of Mars. But yeah. all she can say is Mars. Mars and we're Mars, at the problem Mars. of naming again and yeah. the problem of not having a words. Yeah. They all, you know, in her dream, they all have their their pet concept drawn from political economy right. or aesthetics or spirituality or, right. and, uh, and, and, you know, psychology.
0: And none of it, and, and they all think of it as... I don't know if it's fair to say they all think of it as new, but for her, they're all just drawing on old stuff. Right. And Mars is, insofar as it is, as it is completely other, it is completely new. right. And you right. can't reduce it to or link it to any one of those things. It's simply Mars. But then at the same time, what does that mean? Because if it's simply Mars, then what does that mean to be simply Mars? Right. We still have to invent that. And that's the kind of... Thing that she needs to push through and understand that or i mean i guess to like draw from Marx, she needs to stop uh you know philosophy needs to stop describing something and start like making it or like right. uh, intervening on it right. right right um and and that's where she she comes to at the end um, right i wanted to i mean reading this I, I i thought that um one thing that this chapter does or like you know the, the what we've been talking about is I, I, it just reminds me of a kind of, she's she's trying to fight this nihilism, or she's like trying to wallow in this <clears throat> this nihilistic frozenness and wanting Mars to kill her and um, divorcing herself from any kind of responsibility and fault. I hope you brought an umbrella. If you didn't, uh, I can loan you one.
1: I think it's going to pass. That was thunder. I don't know if the microphones picked up. They probably
0: up. didn't. But the planetariness of our being yeah. is uh, shifting to rain. Yeah. Anyway... Um, I don't, <laughs> um Matt is a weatherman and his other I'm job weatherman um so so trying to forestall any kind of responsibility until she can finally die and and nothing can be her fault mm-hmm. um and and may, may remain in this moment of that's that rejects history that forgets memory and that uh rejects the future too or at least any responsibility for the future and it reminded me of um this uh, paragraph that I love from uh, Hannah Arendt from it's from the, it's the last paragraph of her introduction to origins of totalitarianism, which I think about a lot um, in this day and age. Yeah. yeah. Um, and because also you were talking earlier about the kind of frozenness that she wants to keep herself in uh, after experiencing this great trauma. And for me, the great trauma was Donald Trump's election and, um, uh, and uh, which is when I started reading Hannah Arendt. Um, and, and thus you knew that the great trauma was not Donald Trump's election. That's right, exactly. Yeah. Uh, we've been living through the great trauma for many, many decades now. Uh, but what Hannah Arendt says is. We can no longer afford to take that which was good in the past and simply call it our heritage to discard the bad and simply think of it as a dead load which by itself but which by itself time will bury in oblivion mm. the subterranean stream of western history has finally come to the surface and usurped the dignity of our tradition this is the reality in which we live And this is why all efforts to escape from the grimness of the present into nostalgia for a still intact past or into the anticipated oblivion of a better future are vain. Mm. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. with the exception of that point about subterranean stream of Western history has finally come to the surface, right? Which is little, we could problematize because maybe it wasn't so subterranean after all. Maybe that was just the repressed that we were actively uh, burying um, the whole time. Um, I think this speaks a lot to kind of the place Anne finds herself in and uh, helps a lot to sort of describe the kind of push that Anne needs to get out of that section, that that kind of feeling. And I think it describes the push a lot of us need to get out of the feeling. Yeah, yeah. Well, everything, you know, the past was better. Uh, Maybe it'll go, MAGA Mm -hmm. will go back to the past. We'll make America great again. Or, hey, you know what? the world's going to blow up anyway. Might as well not go to any DSA meetings or, or read the news or right, anything like that. Right. We're all going to die soon. You know, those those are those are both utopian hopes that um, we can go back or that the future won't happen. Uh, and they're really nice ways to escape are the responsibility of the present, which is always to deal with history and build the future.
1: Right, right, right. I mean, we could think if we think that the, to just tie that in, I think that is really perfect here and to tie it into one of the, what seems like one of the big kind of uh, themes, ideas of sure. these books. Yeah. If we, if we allow the book to flash us to our life on earth as we live now, I mean, one of the things we might think that this chapter suggests is, um, you know, so here's Mars. It's not entirely new. In fact, it's not new. It's ancient. Yeah. Right. But it's also new there's no, uh, it still is Mars, it still is radically different, and at the same time, it's now, in these books, the locus of human history. I think there's a way in which we can think about our relationship to Earth, also, as um, this isn't, like, our womb, or our launching pad to the stars, Mm -hmm, right, mm -hmm. and where we're gonna, you know, have uh, universal imperial humanity, Um, but it's also not Uh, the grave, Mm -hmm. Uh, we don't have the option of, like, returning it to some Edenic moment. Um, uh, But also, we're not here to, like, you know, whatever. We're not on the verge of the zombie apocalypse. It would be a relief if it was the zombie apocalypse, right? Because then, you know. That's why there's so many zombie apocalypse
0: movies to escape into.
1: Um, So instead, like, we have to contend with the fact that, Uh, history is happening, and chance is happening, and the situation is as it is, and we still have to make something different. Yeah, You know, we have to work from this place that we're in. We can't work from, and, and, you know, also, like, the world is not just something we can describe through a bunch of convenient metaphors, and yet... We can't not describe it through convenient metaphors,
0: yeah, when also just fall back on, oh, it's been like this in the past, or right. it's been like the or it's been Con- worse in console the past. ourselves, right, yeah, yeah, and that like yeah, we've been in worse situations in the past, M- yeah, maybe, maybe not, but we're in this situation right. now, and you have to deal with the now now, right, right? um and y- you know it goes it goes again to the kind of um. The perspective and and the, the the focus on perspective that the books give yes, is that yeah. um, figuring out what the proper perspective is, or at least if not if proper maybe the wrong word, it seeing through understanding what your perspective is, and then understanding the material conditions that that you perceive through your perspective. That is the. Is the first and probably most difficult thing to yeah, do. Yeah. You know, the analysis is really important and really difficult at the beginning. Um, and once you have an analysis that you can have faith in, um, action after that. Should be very clear. You there should be no other choice after that, right?
1: Right. Right? Well, and just because you're a a difficult um, person who has trouble being with other people, and I'm talking directly to you right now, okay. Uh, Just want to make sure, not our listeners. Yeah. (laughs) And you know your life is fucked up, and you struggle with these things, and you feel bad. Uh, None of the. I mean, I'm thinking of Anne. Yeah. None of those things then say uh, you can't. Be and you aren't already part of some larger collective, and you don't have a responsibility to participate and care, and all of those things. I mean, I like, you know, I love part of what's great about this chapter is like Anne is so human, yeah, you know,
0: yeah, and she's her sadness is so real, it's very recognizable when you, you know, like I, I don't think I identified with it on the first go around when I read it last year but um uh just that kind of melancholy and that kind of living through that trauma and that um being just you know kind of that that the feeling of being stunned and frozen in place right right. after some horrible events have happened and right uh and the the fact that um you know She's been living in this for a very long time. Yeah, right. You know, years have passed since the end of Red Mars. And who knows how much time passes while she's out there driving that boulder car. You know, we don't get dates or times. Right, right. Um, so it, it, it's been a long time. And then what's so, and you know, the ending of the chapter is so wonderful because it, she discovers that she has a family, yeah. Yes. You know, she discovers that there are lots of people and they've been waiting for her and um, we should all be so lucky, basically. Right. 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 Uh, but, you know, who's to say that we can't be, you know, like every time you show up at a DSA meeting, <laughs> I keep I keep using DSA as an example. It's the only thing I've ever been a member of. And I haven't been to a meeting in years and years or months and months. But still, it's like um you know, everybody, everybody who shows up to some kind of meeting like that, they should all get a round of applause. Yes. Yeah, exactly. You know, welcome people when, when they come to a big meeting of lots of people, be happy to see them. Like that's how fellowship happens. And like the future is going to get created is like through people being happy to see you and you being happy
1: to see other people. Right. Exactly. Even if you don't particularly like them.
0: No, pretend. (laughs) Make believe, guys. I know you hate everyone and everyone is a garbage person, but. Solidarity forever. You have to go through the motions. All right. Well, this has been a great conversation. That was great. Yes. Uh, A number one episode. So awesome. So awesome. Next chapter, part four. Oh, my God. The scientist is hero. Sax is back. And he's. (laughs) Badder than ever. Sax
1: is back, folks.
0: So this is the first chapter that we ever get to see of Sax. And actually, if I can give our, our readers just a, a tip about, or, or just uh, foreground this a little bit, the opening, um, the opening prologue describes this um, the the mirror that's going to send a lot more heat right to Mars, and. It opens with this great... I'm just going to read the first paragraph. Hold it between thumb and middle finger. Feel the rounded edge. Observe the smooth curves of glass, a magnifying lens. It has the simplicity, elegance, and heft of a paleolithic tool. Sit with it on a sunny day. Hold it over a pile of dry twigs. Move it up and down until you see a spot in the twigs burn bright. Remember that light? It was as if the twigs caged the little a little sun. Mm. Now this is burning this is you know starting a a little fire with twigs and it's about a magnifying glass and i want to just return to uh the imagery in the long run out of ants
1: yeah yeah
0: she sees the people um uh uh ice skating as ants and right after that she there's this moment where is it oh no where'd it go There's a moment where she imagines ants being burned under a magnifying glass. Right, right. right. It's on, oh, where'd it go? Anyway, uh, she imagines ants being burned under a magnifying glass. And so those two, again, that's another moment. It's on 125. 125. Um, Oh, yeah, right. Uh, She walked back to to her car in the twilight moving clumsily it was difficult to operate the locks to get her helmet off this is after she's sort of decoded what she's seen the drilling rig she realizes she sees the future that the that the northern hemisphere of mars is going to be as she puts it drowned right inside she sat before the microwave without moving for more than an hour images flitting through her mind ants burning under a magnifying glass an anthill drowned behind a mud dam right um magnifying glasses ants people this linkage here and it's another Mm -hmm. moment of this kind of dialectical transition between Mm -hmm. and animal imagery again you know we've you know all these scale scale, and and optical 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 devices and and perspective yeah um and yeah the perspective you know uh a lens as uh, a lens.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, it
0: can burn and it can illuminate. Right. Right. Magnify. It can, focus. Yeah. yeah. Uh, fantastic. Yeah. So uh, good. Jeez. Yeah. And
1: Sax Russell, man. This guy's really smart. Oh my God. This he's, Kim Stanley he's Robinson fellow. smart. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay.
0: Um, so that was great. We're going to be back next week um, very soon with uh, the scientist is hero. And which which is listening. a long section, so it's you long. know, so take your time, couple, enjoy. Yeah, maybe we'll have a couple episodes. Um, thanks for following us on Twitter at Podcast on Mars. Thanks for emailing us. Uh, most of you haven't at uh, <laughs> Marooned on Mars at Gmail at Gmail. Yes, we're available on iTunes and now we're on Google Play. Woohoo! Uh, so you can tell your friends with Android devices that they can finally start listening. That's right. Uh, and um, please rate and review us on iTunes. And if there's some kind of way to Rate and review, review us on Google Play. Go ahead and do that, too. Probably there is. Yeah, what the hell? Yeah, yeah, Tell cool. your friends and um, thanks for your listening. Your neighbors. And your neighbors and your, and your enemies, too. Oh, Meet yeah. them heartily with a smile and a wave <laughs> and a hearty hello, um, even if you don't like them, and then tell them to listen to this goddamn podcast. God damn it.
1: All right. <laughs> Bye. Bye. We'll mm-hmm.